that we need to build 300 Wakandas across Africa. Welcome to an all-new episode of the McFuture Podcast, challenging the beliefs that run the world. I'm Steve Factor, and today I'm going to try to have a very adult conversation about a very adult topic, followed by about four hours of ASMR. I wanted to quickly re-record this part because I don't think I did it justice the first time. I think this is the single most important trend in the world right now. It will determine the fate of nations and how power is aligned around the world or across the world for my flat earth friends. This subject, and I'm speaking specifically now to the YouTube censors that are going to try to kill this episode as they've killed a couple of others of mine. This is a critical look at something very controversial and still harbors a grain of truth. I want to talk about the great replacement theory. It's popped up in different forms. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Mm. If, if look, mm. if this was happening in your house, your parents adopted a bunch of new siblings and gave them brand new bikes, you would say to your siblings, you know, I think we're being replaced by by kids that our parents love more. Tucker Carlson's talked about it. This thing has not gone away. It's surfacing in different ways. All of these conspiracies have been raging online. Anti-Semitism is back. Anti-black, anti-white, anti-gay, anti-anti-gay. The trans uh, controversies. We're turning against each other. In some cases, we've been turned against each other. How we live is going to be in turmoil. Housing is so much less affordable. Trust levels are so much lower. And with AI threatening jobs, a lot of things are going away and a lot of things are going to change. And you see the stuff about the World Economic Forum. I I did a whole episode on it. I had to put it on um, uh, Rumble because YouTube banned it. Anti-globalists are winning in a lot of places, in Italy, in Germany, in France. There are riots in France. And They make some very valid points because globalism has not worked out for a lot of people. All these jobs bled and people are understandably upset. And then the U.S. presidential race is starting to kick up. And if you think Trump is bad or is a demagogue, wait till you see what's possible. He's almost like... um, those simulation programs in the Matrix where they had to teach neo-karate, just a, a blank software environment. Trump is a software program to teach us of what's possible down the road. And uh, I think served a very important purpose in that regard. And I saw this post and it made me realize so much is still bubbling underneath the surface. So this one guy, I'm assuming it's a guy because who else does this nonsense, came up with this methodology showing a scale of coexistence to subjugation of all the different immigrants that live in a country. I have made scoring systems like this, not racial or immigrant-based ones. They make a lot of assumptions, but this idea of 
integration and assimilation is an important one. And I think we're going to need to confront it now more than ever with aging populations in the West. Today, I want to talk about four things that matter. First, I had a huge realization about it. Also, there is this fundamental truth inside of this conspiracy. The third is race must be addressed, but not the race that we've been talking about and fighting over. And fourth, huge surprise ending. Rivals, the aristocrats. The son is licking out his father's <laughs> They each other and they take a bow. The talent agent, he says, what do you call yourself? And they go, the aristocrats. Let's get into the history a little bit of The Great Replacement. We first heard about it here in the U.S. during the Charlottesville riots. And as a Jew, watching a bunch of ignorant white supremacists marching, uh, yelling, the Jews will not replace us, is very low on my Hanukkah list. Probably not in my top 10. When you see these guys chanting, the Jews will not replace us, what does that mean? In their minds, they have concocted a world where the Jews run the world and they're looking to replace these Christian whites with minorities because they're cheaper workforce or because they vote a certain way. I don't know the exact rationalization that, first of all, as a Jew, I would love to be running something. And I have to be honest with you. If I was running things, I would fire every one of these assholes. I'm like, what, what are you doing on the streets with, with uh, Walmart tiki torches? You're fired. Anyway, um, so I would replace you. I just don't have that power. I wish I did. But I am going to bring it up in the meeting. Just kidding, you filthy racist. So there are two things that are happening here. These guys are bastardizing what the U.S. Constitution is. And despite all of our failures to live up to those ideals, the ideals themselves are great. Equality of opportunity, pursuing liberty and justice for all, all great stuff. But this blood and soil concept that this is some sort of ethnostate, that's not even a good interpretation of the great replacement theory, which I'm going to explain in a second. The second thing is there is no such prescriptiveness in the theory. And so what I want to do is go directly to the source. And the guy who came up with it is this guy, Renaud Camus. He briefly mentioned this uh, theory in his book in 2010 called L'Abbécédaire de l'Innocence. By the way, the only French accent I do is Pepe Le Pew. I am Pepe Le Pew, your lover. Basically a rapist squirrel or what was he? A, a skunk? A rapist skunk is my, my one French uh, impression I've trained on in my childhood. Um, but the theory really blossomed in 2011 in his second book. I, I'm a little jealous of how prolific this, uh, this dude is. In 2011, second book, Le Grand Replacement. Replacement. Sacre bleu. All right. He claimed that this whole theory came to him almost completely by chance. And I actually have to give credit to Vox. I don't often give credit to Vox because they 
publish a lot of goofy uh, bloggy stuff and and also some condescending uh, bias stuff that's very like left wing or whatever but but in this case they did a great job they did a Q&A with Camus and asked him all the questions that need to be asked. So let, let's go through the, the theory and let's go through his responses. They asked him first, well, what is the great replacement? These are his words. It applies to all contexts in the world. The very essence of modernity, that things are being replaced. Objects are being replaced. Landscapes are being replaced. Everything is being replaced. And then the interviewer, she asked for a clarification. She's like, well... Uh, do you specifically talk about Muslims? Is is that a replacement you're concerned about in Europe? And his response was, yes, the Muslim migration is just the form that it takes in Occidental Europe. And it's a very strong culture and civilization with its own language, its own religion. For instance, in Western Europe, the replacement is just as much by Black Africa as it is by Northern Islamic Africans. So, uh, okay, now we're getting into race territory, but it's not exclusively that. So let's let's keep going because uh, he does clarify this. So she's like, well, so you're concerned about the replacement of white Christian Europe then, right? He said, quote, it's about Western civilization as a whole. Yes, of which Christianity is one central composing matter. But it's not only that. It could also be Jewish civilization in Europe or free thinking civilization in Europe or sort of European tradition, which are progressively replaced by another population. So this uh, reporter goes on. Her name is Sarah Wildman, who did a great job asking all the right questions. She said, this replacement is not a positive in your mind. It's negative, right? He said, yes, it's very negative. I think the very idea of replacing everything by something else is awful. I think it's disastrous. I think it's the worst totalitarianism at work in the world today. So yes, I think it's perfectly awful for the world to become, for instance, just a site for tourism and not for normal places. He doesn't define what normal is. Then he goes on, like Las Vegas is a replacement for Venice. Or amusement parks are replacements for nature or natural monuments. Everything is being replaced by mass production. I think it is perfectly awful, yes, because I think the dignity of man is that he is not replaceable. The nightmare is what I call the replaceable man, the man who is just something which can be replaced by someone else, something which can be replaced by someone else or something else at any moment. It is the worst thing to happen since Nazism. All right. Interesting. I'm going to give you my assessment in a second, but I think there's a couple more points and this next one is very salient in particular. So she tries to clarify the reporter. White nationalists in Charlottesville were chanting, you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us. Do you think that sense of anxiety about replacement comes from the ideas you've been articulating? And this is what he says. The refusal to be replaced is a very strong feeling in man. It doesn't really need to be put into hearts and into minds. So he thinks it's innate. And this is a key point right here. This is his quote. 
The will not to be replaced was at the center of resistance to colonialism. The refusal of being a colony in India or in Africa is very much part of anti-replacism. People don't want other people to come in their territory, in their country, and change their cultures and their religions. Their way of living, their way of eating, their way of dressing. It sounds like the ultimate NIMBY theory, not in my backyard. It exists in milder forms and non-racial terms and maybe more economic terms or just uh, group clusters pretty much everywhere you look around the world. So there is some truth to it. But he does also distance himself from Nazism, anti-Semites, and violence. Um, But he does fear, and this is a quote, ethnic cultural, civilizational obsolescence for Europeans. And when asked specifically about Americans, he said, Americans have every reason to be worried about being changed into just another poor, derelict, hyperviolent, and stupefied quarter of the global village. Now he, I don't know if intentionally or because of the interviews that I've read with him and some of the other writing that I've read. I I didn't read the original book because it just, I I didn't have time for this episode, but I, I read a bunch of summaries and I've read a bunch of his interviews. He either purposely or just, it's not part of his theory, leaves out harsh lines between culture, religion, ethnicity, and race. He mentions them in passing, but he doesn't take a strong stand on any one of those things or which one is right. Cause he's, he's very careful to use examples where it's like, Hey, you know, colonial Indians and, and, and Africans didn't want to be replaced either. So that's part of uh, his theory as well. At the end of the day, I found his theory to be extremely aimless and unfocused. It's almost like a cultural theory of everything. Everything can fit under this theory. It's like, oh, the replacement of cars, the replacement of underwear, the replacement of hair. How could that be bad? You didn't have hair before, and they went and moved the hair from the back of your head to the front of your head, and now you have hair. How can the replacement of hair be bad? Camus, explain it to me. His theory tries to cover too much. It tries to cover humanity. It tries to cover things. It tries to cover every region. It doesn't take a lot of uh, different cultural circumstances, historical circumstances into account. I think this guy just lucked out. (laughs) Honestly, I think he just got lucky that, that the right crazy people took hold of his theory and they're like, hey, wait a minute. I feel like I'm being replaced. That's bad. This guy is speaking to me. So I think there's a lot of that happening, but it's really unfocused. And here's the big realization I had. This theory is exactly the mirror image of the cultural appropriation theory on the left. When you're saying, I don't want to be replaced, that's a natural thing. You're trying to protect your job, your your community, the way of life that you've known or whatever. Fine. That's kind of the historical norm. You may disagree with it. You may think someone is racist or, or, or a NIMBY or whatever your range is for judging that person. But at least it makes sense, right? Because it's, it's survival of that person and of that person's interests. It's like, I don't want to be replaced. The cultural appropriation theory is like, 
I don't want the cultures of these other people that I see as weaker or not as smart or not as successful or lesser than me. I don't want them to be replaced. It is the luxury version of the great replacement theory. So the left is saying, hey, I found all these people I feel superior to, and I'm going to protect them. But I'm not going to protect them in real life, and I'm not going to give up my job. Don't get me wrong. But I'm going to defend their recipes against Tony Bourdain. Okay, maybe not Tony Bourdain. He's dead. I don't have to defend that hard. But Guy Fieri? Guy Fieri might steal their recipes. Guy Fieri is like like a Jaws. He's like a shark. He sees a recipe, like a Mexican recipe. That guy is going to just devour it with his donkey sauce. That guy, I, I don't know if I could protect you from it. I'm going to try. I mean, if I could do it with a tweet, great. But if I can't, I, listen... Just know I've tried. Just know I've done everything I could. Everything. And look, I might go the extra mile. I heard about this other network, uh, Instagram. So I'm going to screenshot my tweet and I'm going to post them on Instagram. Listen, no promises. I can't guarantee that your life is going to get better, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to put it out there and to defend you, all the people I've lumped together culturally because I have no interest in your history or, or identifying who's what and what's what. It doesn't matter because it will make me feel better. I will feel better. And isn't that what's most important? The feelings of the white person protecting you. Isn't that what matters most? It is the most luxurious <laughs> way to assuage your own guilt. As long as it can be done with a tweet. Do you see that the racism is about the same in both theories? It's so simplistic. You've lumped all these people together. People of co color. What does that even mean? That shows this deep disinterest in their history. In how things got the way they got in the individuals involved and their conditions and situations. It just become this, this catch-all to assuage guilt and to squeeze votes out of people. That's all it is. It's a manipulation. It's just a manipulation. And the great replacement and cultural appropriation are exactly the same. So there's another thing going on here. And this is something that Camus... He kind of alludes to, but he never really talks about it. He never really nails. And I did. I wrote about this actually after Charlottesville, and it's more relevant today. I wrote a piece called Shame I Did Not See It Sooner. And not see it is spelled as in the guys who march in, uh, in uh, what are those boots called? Jack boots? No, what are they called? The, the goose-stepping guys. You know who I'm talking about. I wrote about shame. And this is a really important part of it. And I think we embrace it in some contexts, but we don't embrace it in others. And so let me just read you a little excerpt of what I wrote there. Every leftist and libertarian I know agrees that our presence on foreign soil, especially in the Middle East, contributes to radicalization. They never stop saying it except when their guy is president. And I'm alluding to Obama, who continued all the Bush policies. But how would you feel if an omnipotent foreign army was stationed in Michigan, deposed and installed our leaders, and could rain bombs on us at will? The word that comes to mind is impotence 
Over millennia, we evolved all of these muscles to defend our families, our communities, to bring home the kebab. But now they can't. They can't provide. They can't defend. They can't be men. And even their country's not quite theirs anymore. Not without some foreign bodyguard they don't know or trust. This is a shaming. So they lash out. Not everyone, but you kill enough people and the six degrees of Kevin Bacon catch up with you real fast. This kind of shaming is not unprecedented. Germany, after World War I, was decimated, forced to pay reparations, plunged into depression. Again, men could not support their families. Money was worthless. Basic goods unavailable. And guess what happened next? A failed painter showed up, promising greatness. Not food, not shelter, not jobs, motherfucking greatness. And we all know what happened next. His Instagram blew the fuck up. The rest is history. So what's today's shaming? Everything. Imagine a guy whose life is going shitty, whose friends are numbing themselves with opioids, killing themselves at a rate unknown historically in this country, or maybe the world, I don't know, and has no hope of ever working again or getting beyond stocking shelves at Walmart for just above minimum wage. Imagine that guy turning on the news and a virtual occupying force bombs him every day with accusations of white privilege, some sort of shaming that's been invented five minutes ago that he's doing that he didn't know about. And the thing he quoted from Wikipedia is now mansplaining. Now imagine seven to 10 years of this over and over nonstop bombardment on media and social media, nonstop reminders of the privilege his skin and gender afford him, and still only $80 in the bank. Suddenly, it's not inconceivable that the shamee lashes out by finding others like him online, by voting in the FU candidate into office, by going after other groups. Anyway, I, the, the whole piece is really good. You should check it out. It's called uh, Shame I Did Not See It Sooner. I don't know. I'll, I'll try to include the link in the show notes. If not, just Google it. I'm sure, I'm sure Googling that word will, will get you a lot of uh, great targeted ads. So there's really two things here that Camus didn't touch on. The first is this intrinsic failure to achieve. Because a lot of these people could have tried harder, could have done better in school. They could have gotten better jobs. They could have moved out when they were younger and tried to pursue some other career. I guess if it was within their capacity. So maybe you, you could make that argument. Maybe there's this internal shame for not achieving more or being more capable of t taking care of their families. So there's that part of it. The other part is external which is this cultural pylon that's happening. Uh, and the combination of those two things contributes to this situation that we're in and this thing that we're feeling. And there is a hidden truth here, a very real phenomenon that's happening. And that phenomenon is aging. We have aging populations all across the developed world. Asia, Europe, and even here in the U.S. 
Japan is at a median age of 49. They're busy developing exoskeletons so their workers can keep working. The sensors activate the wires and that lessens the burden on my arms. I'm cancelling out about 12 kilos worth. It's insanity over there. They are done. They are done. Germany is in their high 40s. I think about 48. US uh, since 1980 to today has gone up from... 31 to 38, so we're not exactly spring chickens, but we're, we're doing okay. And then by comparison, Africa, median age, under 20 years old. Some countries, it's 16. It's just inconceivable. Like, can you imagine a Japanese person going on vacation somewhere in Nigeria or Zimbabwe and going, what? 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 I haven't seen an old person yet. Why is this a problem? Isn't fewer people good for the planet? Seth Rogen said so. Some people want kids. Some people don't want kids. I think a lot of people have kids before they even think about it. Honestly, the older we get, the more happy and reaffirmed we are with our choice to not have kids. And we don't have to raise a child, which the, the world does not need right now. <laughs> and, and I believe all Rogans. Hashtag believe all Rogans. Seth Rogen says it's not good for the planet. And so does AOC. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult. And it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question. You know, should, is it okay to still have children? People I trust. The problem is we want stuff. We want food, clothing, gadgets, shelter, toys, cars, homes. We want all of these material goods. And we either have to make them or we have to earn enough to pay someone else to make them for us. And that's assuming we can't use debt to do it into infinity, which we have been doing. Same thing goes for services and experience that you see all these blogs are like, hey, young people, they don't want stuff. They don't want houses. They just want to have experiences. They just want to get, they just want to get jacked off in the van overlooking a, a mountain somewhere. No, they want stuff too. It's just they can't afford it. They're making the best of things, okay? They, they don't have the, the jobs. They don't have access to uh, some of the material benefits that existed before the country got fucked by shitty politicians. And- Experiences cost money too. You still have to rent the van. You still have to go on that vacation. You want to go on a tour or you want to go see the, the sites in whatever place you just backpack to. That's all money. That's still money. You still need a job. You still need some way of earning it. And who's going to wheel you around when you're 85? Who's going to pay for your Medicare when you're old? Who is going to do it when there aren't people working? Who? And that's why the French are rioting. They told them, hey, we don't have the money. All these amazing benefits, all these retirement plans, the, the pensions that we gave you, we need to up the age limit by two years because we can't afford to keep paying. Riots on the streets, stuff being burned, rocks being thrown. That's what happens when you tell French people they have to work. It's not good. And those things are going to happen everywhere because the money runs out when you don't have people 
earning it. In England, perfect example, the number of pensioners supported per worker is going to increase by 40% in the next half century, in the next 50 years. Four pensioners for every 10 people of working age. Taxes are not coming down anytime soon. So right now they spend 4.8% of GDP on pensions, on state pensions. It's going to have to go up to 8.1% of GDP by 2070. And they're going to have to raise the pension age too. So this is a global problem. This is a European problem. And the U.S., it's going to become a problem soon. And and the instability caused elsewhere will become our problem as well. And I'll explain that in a second. But no one is immune. And I don't even think percentage of GDP is the right way to look at this stuff. Because percentage of GDP suggests uh, (laughs) that there's going to be some growth in your GDP. Well, that growth may not come because you have fewer workers. So now I think the better way to look at it is percentage of your uh, tax revenues that now need to go to supporting pensions or or these other uh, social programs that now aren't that affordable anymore. So bottom line is we need workers. We need workers. We need lots of workers. And nothing has worked to make workers. Every program to grow population organically has failed, failed miserably. For example, Poland uh, their population is going to fall uh, to 34 million from 38 million by 2050. Their birth rate is 1.44. You need a birth rate of 2.1 for replacement. Get it? Replacement? You need to replace the people that used to exist with new people if you want things to continue working? You need to replace them. That is the great replacement. You need to replace the ones that are dying off. 1.44 ain't going to cut it, and Poland knows it. So they came up with this program called uh, Family 500 Plus. Flopped completely. They were doing a monthly payment of 500 zloty to every family for each child. Now, 500 zloty, I believe, is like 48 cents, which may not be enough uh, because zloty isn't what it used to be. Not to be confused with pilati, which is uh, for rich white women, but uh, zloty is something else. Uh, it's their currency. And this program was also expanded to cover uh, the first child of every family. So they were just handing out money and they spent a total of 42 billion zloty per year on this program. Total flop. And they have a new strategy, Demographic Strategy 2040. Uh, which has flexible work for pregnant women, reduced hours with employers legally prohibited from discriminating against uh, anyone who's uh, on maternity leave. Mothers returning from maternity leave will be protected from being made redundant for 12 months. And they'll also not be permitted to dismiss fathers until their child's 41st birthday. Oh, I misread that. First birthday. And also during pregnancy and during anal sex. I don't know why they added that in, but why not throw in a little fun, right? Polish moms are actually allowed to have their bosses executed. And if they're found guilty, the parents of the boss go to jail. I I thought that that went a little too far, personally. All right, seriously, 
None of this has worked. They're trying to add housing support and all this other stuff. None of these programs. Uh, Hungary, same thing. Women below 40 who marry for the first time will be eligible for 10 million foreign, which is $36,000. By the way, if your currency is up to 10 million and it only amounts to $36,000, you got to change the currency. You got to knock some zeros off. This is not, this is not a good look. Um, It makes you look like a third world country, Uh, Hungary, which already has Hungary in the name. And also they're giving these loans. And for each child you have, a third of the loan is going to be forgiven. By the way, this sounds like a total Shark Tank offer. It's like, oh, the percentage goes down after five years if you hit this uh, number. And uh, the fourth child, uh, after the loan is forgiven, uh, gets a cabinet position in the government. So I'm kidding. Uh, Russia, same thing. They're offering a half a war to their mothers. <laughs> doing a lot of kidnapping of Ukrainian children, which is not funny. I, I had a joke, but I think I'm, I'm going to leave that one off. They're all trying it. Nothing's working. And same thing is happening in China. China is having a population implosion. They just for the first time announced that their population went down. And all that one-child policy is now finally kicking in in a way that is going to blow their country's economy, just blow it up completely. All the subjects of the one-child policy are now entering their 40s. And once you're in your 40s, you're not procreating, realistically, not statistically. So... They don't even have enough people if they wanted to breed like bunnies to get to a point where they replace their population because A, the population is so huge and B, there's just not enough people to do it. South Korea is a, is a freaking mess. They've spent $150 billion on their birth program. Nothing to show for it. Nothing. The birth rate did not budge. They tried maternity leave, bonuses, housing subsidies. They even tried importing foreign nannies. They tried to have a fund for bachelors seeking foreign brides. They even came up in 2016 with this crazy idea, a birth map, which shows how many women of reproductive age live in each region. That is the rapiest idea. I don't know who came up with it. Anyway, so this article that I read that talked about this, they attribute a lot of this to culture in Korea. And what's happened in Korea, just to sum it up, is the ambitions of women have improved, have changed. They've, they want the same things that men want in terms of career, self-sustenance, all those things that a lot of us want. But the cultural norms and expectations of women have not changed. They're still expected to stay in the home and be the maternal provider and do all the housework and all that stuff. So it's created this huge tension in the society. And so a lot of women just said, screw it, we're opting out. And I agree that there is some importance to this cultural overlay, but there's something far deeper and more structural happening here. There is nothing on earth that can raise birth rates from 1.3 to 2.1 or higher. There's not a single Barry White song or Drake song, whatever it is that gets you hot and heavy, that will put you in enough of a mood to plant enough seed to get your country out of the dirt. The reason no country can get to 2.1 
which is replacement, is this thing is structural. The decline in birth is locked in to modernity. And that's because historically children have served three main functions. The first is survival. You needed them to help earn, to support you when you couldn't anymore, to work the fields, to protect the village, to fix the roofs, to do all these things that you could no longer do in your 50s or 60s if you were lucky to even live that far uh, in, in those times. And also take care of you when you're old, you know, just someone's got to wipe your butt. And then there's the biological and emotional need that just kicks in. I mean, who hasn't kidnapped a small, cute baby when they've got baby fever? Take them home and raise them as your own. Who hasn't done that? Okay, maybe a few of you haven't done that, but that's fine. You know, don't do that. It's, it's, it's not legal. The third thing is social and religious. People are social creatures. There's only so much of a browbeating you can take from your parents. Hey, you better get married. You better have kids. You better do all this stuff. And then all your friends start doing it. So there's this social component where your friends start abandoning you because they're getting married and you're like, oh, I better, I better do that too. But what happens if you eliminate number one? You eliminate the survival component. What happens to a society when you outsource all of that now you know, life is much easier. You have automation. You have buses to take you places. You have services that can deliver things to you. You don't have to lift heavy objects anymore. You don't have to till the fields. The jobs are on your computer. You can keep doing them till you're 85 years old in, in a diaper. Once you get rid of survival, children become a novelty act. Their value plummets. They become optional. The only thing left are the other two functions. You might still have that biological and emotional need. It's going to have to overcome an empty bank account in some cases. On the social side, people are less religious. So you don't even have that pressure looming over you. So we've eliminated chunks of the impetus for having kids. That's not just in uh, Korea or Poland. It's happening in the U.S. It's happening everywhere modernity strikes, maternity dies. Ooh, that's pretty good. I just made that up on the spot. I hope I'm recording because that's going to be annoying if I have to try to remember that later. So what's a dying country to do? Slowly die off? Have your language and culture disappear? A lot of European cities and most of Japan are going to be tourism exhibits. You go there, they're just hollow shells. They're not going to be thriving cities anymore because there's just not going to be enough people working. Even New York now with uh, post-COVID looks dead. Midtown is still dead. It's maybe at 40% capacity, maybe less in some neighborhoods. At least some of these places are beautiful, so maybe they'll attract tourists. But- the the ugliness of American architecture, no one's showing up and paying money to see any of this stuff. A bunch of empty buildings, no thanks. The other option is to conquer and subjugate other people. Let them be the workers that you can't be anymore. Take their stuff. Take their women and children, which kind of is what Russia's doing. Once you start kidnapping kids, it's certainly part of your agenda. And you could also pray for some new birthing technology, like all, all those pods on the matrix, and maybe we'll be able to, to spawn a bunch of kids and take care of them in some magical way. 
It's not reality. So the only thing left, the only thing left is immigration. Immigration is a realistic option, but not always, not to everybody, and some do it better than others. You have countries like the UK, Germany, and France. They do take a decent amount of immigrants, and they've made a lot of strides in assimilating them. But to this day, do you really want to be that Moroccan immigrant trying to work his way through France's social hierarchy? That's no easy task. The problem is a lot of these countries are bound by history, class, and most importantly, ethnicity. Many of them are ethnostates. Ethnostates have no mechanism, desire, or capacity to assimilate other ethnicities, religions, or cultures. There is not a thing I can do to you to make you Japanese. <laughs> There's no organ I can remove. There is no thing that I could insert into you to make you Japanese. It is not happening. Japan is an ethnostate. And as an ethnostate, taking immigration is not an option. And Japan knows it's doomed. Japanese researchers put out a clock that was counting down to Japanese extinction in a thousand years. But the government forced them to take it down because it was such a bummer. And you can understand why. And they're completely isolationist. I, I remember when I was, I don't know, in college maybe, uh, maybe shortly after that, I read a book called You Gotta Have Wa. Hilarious book. I think it was Robert Kiting. I, don't hold me to that. But really funny about the experience of American baseball players who went to Japan to play and the cultural differences and the, the discrimination. It was just crazy. And way more recently, Japan wanted housekeepers and, and service workers. So they brought in all of these ethnic Japanese who were living in Brazil, but they viewed them as lower class. They brought them in to do these jobs that the Japanese didn't want to do. And in 2009, as soon as the recession hit, they brought ships over to take them out of Japan. They literally expelled them from the country. He's like, oh, there's no more jobs. You're out. So they never even considered them fully Japanese. And this is pretty recent. This is what, 13 years ago, 14 years ago? That's not a country that's going to assimilate immigrants very well. And Japan just announced a new visa, which will accept high earners and top graduates. I could tell you now, it's not going to work because there's not enough high earners and top graduates that want to hang out with 50-year-old Japanese people uh, unless they're coming from some godforsaken country where things are really bad. And secondly, if I start hanging out with bodybuilders and don't lift a weight, no one's going to confuse me for a bodybuilder. So these uh, people coming in will not get the acceptance or the assimilation that's necessary. And Japan is maybe an extreme version, but there's a version of that in other countries. How many Nigerian immigrants are yodeling in the Swiss Alps? And how many Guatemalans are singing Porcini or uh, Puccini in Italy? I'm aware one of those is a mushroom. I just don't know which. They're coming over, but they're not assimilating. If you can't answer the following question with a strong affirmative, 
immigration fails. And that question is, will this immigrant value and defend our culture, language, and legacy? And if the answer to that is not a resounding yes, immigration fails. You might still have people, but your culture will be dead. Even if it's not completely dead, it'll just age into extinction as the Japanese are anticipating they will. The U.S. is a rare exception. And listen, I, I, I'm patriotic. I immigrated here. I'm an immigrant from Soviet Union, from Ukraine. It is so rare to have a country where citizenship is decoupled from ethnicity and from class in a lot of ways. I am an immigrant. I work with people who are immigrants or second generation immigrants from all over the place, look all different ways, come from all different places, uh, some of them impoverished places. It's really an amazing place. It really is. At least historically in the U.S., we've been united by common principles and enriched by our ethnicities, not defined by them. That's very different. And even class in the U.S. is not the prison that it is in other places. Like, making it is not easy. No one's saying that it is. But it is extremely common. In fact, it's so common, there's a rapper who made it from the hood whose name is Common. He couldn't have crippled himself with the worst name and still succeeded. That's how common it is to be a success here. And it's not just people from the hood. It's people from the backwoods who are good comedians. It's uh, Chinese immigrants who become great doctors because they value education and, and put in the work. Uh, or Indian tech titans who are now running some of the biggest corporations in this country. Everybody is able to make it here and the class structure is not rigid. There is a level that you can reach where you can be partying with Cristal on Puffy's yacht. There is that level and everyone can do it. And if you're hot enough, you could skip the line maybe, but for the rest of us, we're going to have to work for it and, and get there ourselves. And so you end up rocketing up the social order regardless of your ethnicity. That is a beautiful thing to be appreciated. You don't have to win the sperm lottery. By the way, the sperm lottery is where they use their little tails to rub off those numbers on the tickets. This is not where the royal family still rules. The closest thing we have is Kardashians, and even they fuck their way into fame. And we have one other advantage that no one talks about. And that advantage is self-sufficiency, or at least the prospect of it. Here's what I mean by that. We have a pretty smart population, or at least people who have the capacity to be smart. So we have production power, the power to innovate and spawn companies and do all these great things. The other thing we have is a large, wealthy market that represents purchasing power. So we've got two sides of the equation. That is extremely rare. Like Israel, for example has a super smart population, on average, way smarter than ours. They have way more um, Nobel Prizes and research studies published and innovative companies per capita than we do. But they can do nothing with them domestically, not to uplift their economy. They have to sell to other big markets. That's the only way they can monetize all of that smartness. 
And same thing with Singapore. Singapore has a tiny market, but it's filled with smart people. So they have to become the banking hub for other markets. So they have to provide services to other big countries or big places that do have big markets. And China, we, through outsourcing, through our own short-term greed, put them in a position to be both, to be both smart and a big domestic market. And that's why they are a legitimate threat and places like Russia is not because Russia can't produce because their culture doesn't uh, allow for innovation and their population is is uh, now collapsing. Actually, China's collapsing now too. So it's a very interesting world. And then you've got countries like Thailand, which does not have a, a very educated population. So they're selling their bodies. And it really sucks when no one is buying. Like during the pandemic, they tried to say, hey, we're going to do this work visa, work from paradise. We have all the internet you need. Come here, you spend your dollars here, live here, do commerce and invest here. No one came. No one came. That's all they've got. And if you don't show up, they got to compete with the rest of us uglies uh, picking a fruit out of the ground or kombucha. I don't even know if kombucha comes out of the ground, but someone's got to pick it and it ain't going to be us. That's the world we live in. So if you're not beautiful and, and people can't pay you for that and you're not smart, you have to find a way. You still have to survive. So we need immigration as Americans, as Europeans, Japan. Not all of us can have it because of the reasons we've talked about. How big should it be? Well, I could at least speak for the U.S. and <laughs> I'm speaking for the entire country of the United States. I was briefly infatuated with uh, Matt Iglesias' book, One Billion Americans. And the reason for that is I do think economics dictate power and influence around the world. For example, when all these controversies with China started bubbling up, Nike could not make a peep. Neither could the NBA because their market and their future is in China. That's where the growth is. So they shut the hell up when Hong Kong is doing protests. And uh, I think it was an NBA coach said something in support of Hong Kong. They sent their number one hitman, LeBron James, to shut that guy up because their bread is buttered in China. Your economic might dictates your cultural power, not just in your country, but around the world. So by definition, you need to have a bigger population and a bigger and more powerful economy so your values get exported. Your word is the final word, not the word of the bigger economy somewhere else that's buttering everyone's bread. And so I was infatuated with this one billion Americans concept saying that, yeah, maybe we should let in a, a bunch of immigrants because we can assimilate all these people. We have the space and more people means more stuff being bought, more innovation, more of, 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 of all these great things. I don't think that number is necessary. I think our number is probably closer to 500 million than 1 billion. And the reason for that is China's population is imploding. I don't think they'll be the powerhouse that we feared them to be. I think China is going to get old before it gets rich. And the thing about our immigration debate, 
we are blowing it. We are blowing it so hard. You would think we had an OnlyFans channel. That's how much we're blowing immigration. Uh, we're having the dumbest debate. Our system rewards argument and the right wants to sell you on fear of immigrants and the left wants to sell you on cheap labor under the guise of caring. Consuela, please uh, finish cleaning the apartment, please. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, back to tweeting. Hashtag uh, stop Asian hate. Hmm? They want their nannies. They want cheap stuff. They want their houses taken care of. But no one's actually looking for the best interest of the country because party first. And both parties bank on it the same way they banked on abortion. It's really not that hard for a rich, powerful nation like ours to come up with a sensible immigration policy. In fact, I fit it on one tweet here. I'm going to expand on a little bit, but it fits in 280 characters. So first is you let all the entrepreneurs, top students and educated professionals in, but not with an H-1B. H-1B is a garbage visa. It is basically indentured servitude that only serves giant corporations because they get all these people who can't switch jobs unless another company sponsors them. It's total trash. And the people who are coming in, they have no loyalty to, to the country either. They're just workers or just laborers. Yeah, maybe they'll spend some money here while, while they're here. But I think the people we need to take in are maybe some of those same people, but with intent to settle here, to become citizens. So if they have citizenship intent, all the same people would love to have them, but but not without, because I don't, I don't think we want a bunch of carpetbaggers. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that improves the country. But we have to be careful because when the U.S. cuts off skilled immigration, these companies will just open uh, offices and start doing business elsewhere. They're not going to necessarily do it here. So that has to be based on market need, deciding which uh, professions, which cultures, which people to let in or not let in. Uh, laborers, same thing, market need. And this is where we need to make the distinction in terms of the kind of immigration. There, there's something called the Baumol effect, B-A-U-M-O-L. And the Baumol effect means that even after you account for inflation, the cost of a haircut is still going to be more in 2022 than it was in 1952. And you're like, well, why? Shouldn't it cost the same? No, because of increased productivity in other sectors, the service jobs have to keep up. Otherwise, People aren't going to do those jobs. So if you still want your nails done, you still want your house clean, you still want all this other stuff done, you're going to have to pay more even when you take out inflation because these other things are getting more expensive. Housing got more expensive. All the ex food got more expensive or whatever else that you need to sustain yourself. So you're not going to do those jobs if you can't support yourself. So that's the Baumol effect. So wage improvements in one area or productivity gains in one area pull up wages in other areas because they have to keep up. Otherwise, you won't get those services. So uh, the two examples I read in this one article, which is actually really good, um, talked about Australia. So Australia, on average, takes more people with higher education. They have a lot of immigrants from China uh, and Asia in general. So the people that Australia brings in actually raise wages in the country. They don't depress them. But 
the US and the UK take a lot of low wage workers. And when you take a lot of low wage workers, what ends up happening is the average wage gets compressed because you're increasing labor much faster than you're increasing capital. So you need to find that right balance. So people have a reason to be afraid when you're letting in tons of people or not stopping people at the border from just streaming into the country. Their wages go down. It's the Baumol effect. It's real. So any serious conversation about immigration and immigration policy has to address this Baumol effect. It has to address very real fears of replacement and substitution and obsolescence of domestic workers, especially now that a lot of them are doing unskilled jobs that will very easily go to all of this labor that's streaming in through the borders. So these are very legitimate fears. And the fact that we can't have a real conversation about it just talks about the, the rank stupidity that we, we were mired in. And, and just in general, as we age, we become more fearful because your options start to decrease, your ability to move, your energy levels, your health, your lifespan, all of these things diminish and you become more fearful and more vulnerable. And to not acknowledge that is a form of callousness, maybe intellectual dishonesty and also, just a lack of understanding. I don't. I don't want to say that people have ill will, but I don't think we're we're having real conversations here. And I think we also should let in asylum seekers on a case by case basis. We don't have to have like a a hard and fast policy. But if people are being killed or abused or whatever, and we can assimilate them effectively, yeah, let's let's try to work that out. This is a, a big country, and it should be a compassionate country as well. And we should also improve nations that are causing a lot of illegal immigration. And Kamala Harris, one of the few th things that <laughs> they deployed her on that almost made sense was talking about this idea of uh, improving their places so they don't have to come to our nation. And uh, of course, the way she said it was probably like, uh, the people who don't have jobs want the freedoms and the jobs. And when they come, they come because they care and they care because they come. And we care because it's important to care. And when we care, the world is a much bigger place. And when the world is a bigger place, it's a more open place. It's a more caring place. And we as a country become more able to help and nurture the truth that is the human spirit. You know that's what she sounds like, don't you? <laughs> yeah, we got to do that. And we do that through trade, through negotiation, and the way we do everything else, which is we pull strings and say, hey, if you don't do X and Y, we're not going to give you aid or we're not going to give you this contract. We have a lot of leverage with these countries that we are not choosing to exercise. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. We just have a lot of very mediocre people in, in government. The other thing is we got to control the borders. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be compassionate to uh, illegal immigrants that are already here, but the only way to have a country is to be in control of who gets in or out of it with passport controls. Uh, I even wrote uh, an idea in my book, uh, in a conovation years ago, I wrote, why don't we use all these dying cities that have real estate nobody wants, like Detroit, and let 
people just live there who are maybe illegal. And then after five, seven, 10 years, whatever the, the right period of time is, they become citizens because, and now they've developed an economy there. They've created jobs. They've created all this other stuff. And we have real estate to give them because it's real estate no one else wants right now. That's just one example. I'm sure there's dozens of ways we could do this. And when it comes to controlling borders, I think we shouldn't have a wall. I think we should have an obstacle course where you can solve all of these puzzles and show a minimum level of agility and creative thinking. And if by the end you're able to pass all of the puzzles and get to the other side, you get to be an American citizen. We give you an innovation test. We give you a physical fitness test. We give you just a basic uh, logical and reasoning test. Then we have you do American Ninja Warrior stuff, just a little bit, just for entertainment, because this is also gonna be a reality show. You're not just gonna do a cool obstacle course and then not put it on TV. That would be insane. So instead of a wall, we build an obstacle course. That is my solution. And uh, yeah, we gotta boot bad actors. So once you've committed a crime, we catapult you over the wall. Maybe this is all part of the same reality show. We've got the obstacle course on one side, and then we've got uh, this catapult that just throws you back in. And then you try to run the obstacle course again, and you can't get it until you pass the morality test, you pass all of the other tests that we have. So and then you just keep getting catapulted until you pass it. Okay, I'm obviously joking there, but uh, nobody wants a real conversation. Nobody wants to talk about catapults. Nobody wants to, to have a sensible policy that works. So all roads lead back to one simple truth. And that truth is the only way for countries to survive in this world of declining population is immigration. That's the only way economically, militarily, culturally, biologically, that any country stays in business. And some have a way better shot at it than others. I think the U.S. has a tremendous opportunity. If I were a betting man, I would be betting on the U.S. Because despite our idiot leaders and our mismanagement, we have the tools and the capability to absorb people in ways that other countries don't or certainly haven't shown a history of, of doing. To bring it all home, someone will replace you. You better hope someone is here to replace you. Someone must replace you because if they don't, there's no country to live in. Maybe the US has a little bit more time, but Japan's done and there's nothing they can do organically to save it. So this whole blood and soil idea of the great replacement theory is nonsense. It's stupid because there's not enough blood. There's not enough semen to make that work. Forget about blood. It should be semen and soil. That's the, the theory. And there's just not enough of it or eggs for that matter, but there's not enough of it. You're not having enough kids. That's the bottom line. You blew it. You blew it. We all blew it. I blew it. We all blew it. Of course, the irony here is that all of us stopped having kids, but we never stopped wanting the things that kids provide for us, which is future productivity. And that isn't going away. Human desire for things is not going away. And as long as it exists, we're going to have to come to terms with both population decline and immigration. Our leaders failed us. They shipped jobs abroad. They 
exacerbated a lot of these problems. They weaponized immigration to a disgusting extent. The, the, the nature of the conversation is so dumb and so vitriolic and so hateful and stupid. And I'm talking about left and right. The left is, is almost weird to me because they partake in all the benefits of low-wage immigration, but disguise it with this caring facade. It's just as nauseating as someone being overtly hateful. Ugh. And we made housing, healthcare, and education unaffordable. All of these things are inexcusable. And all of us are going to be replaced with AI. AI is coming for us, including the engineers who are coding the AI. So besides immigration, what are the things I think we should do? I'm going to go really quickly through these, but there's a couple of key points. So first and foremost, we need a degrowth strategy. Everything in our society is built for growth, 401k plans, debt, uh, housing prices, all of our wealth being wrapped up in housing. All of these things presume that the economy is going to grow and we're going to be, be able to pay off our debt because now it's a smaller and smaller percentage of our GDP. But not if we keep taking on more and more debt and the population starts to shrink and there's fewer taxpayers. So, we in the U.S. and certainly Europe, and France is trying, and they're, they're putting out fires in the streets uh, trying to do this, uh, we need a degrowth strategy, not active degrowth. There's a difference. So a lot of the environmentalists are promoting active degrowth, 1,000% unnecessary. In fact, this is why I'm not worried about climate change. I was going to do a whole climate change episode. At some point, I was like, screw this. This is a waste of time. And here's why I think it's a waste of time. We are 70 years away from global population declining. And as global population declines, we will consume less. And as we age, we consume less. So all of the pressure that now exists on the environment is going to uh, subside. It's not going to go away. There's still going to be mitigation investments that we need to make. There are a lot of things we're going to need to do. So I'm not against it. And, and I do support the uh, transition to green and green fuels and clean energy and clean air and all, all that. I'm, I'm in support of all that, but I'm not in support of the panic. And the reason for that is very simple. The whole thing is shrinking. So let's not freak out. Uh, so we don't need active degrowth. We just need a degrowth strategy. And immigration is part of that. But the other part of it is as our population shrinks and starts to buy less and less because we're aging, I'm talking about like the developed world, there's only one thing that can offset that. And that is Africa. We need to build Wakanda. No joke. We need to build Wakanda. We need to make Africa great again. MAGA. Nobody steal that. I think it's a pretty good uh, acronym. Here's why. It is the only part of the world that has the numbers. Huge population, young population, capable of working, capable of contributing, but they are a mess. You think American politics are a mess? You check out Chad. <laughs> Go for a tour in Chad. So we need to build not one Wakanda. We need to build 300 Wakandas across Africa. We need to produce for a population that's growing. What increases we can create in African consumption can offset the aging declines in whatever we make. That, in essence, 
is the strategy. And so whatever it takes to do that, short of invasion, short of killing people, short of, because I know we do that often and claim that it was righteous and it's not. Let's not do that. But uh, whatever gets us from here to 300 Wakandas who are buying all of the stuff and are able to uh, build some of that and we're able to benefit from our knowledge transfer and our uh, materials and our science and our innovations uh, should benefit all of us as we decline and they have these younger populations. I'm not saying it's the only solution, but I've told you about the others that we've tried and the Polish people are, are not going to be able to do it. Neither are the Hungarians, neither are the Russians, neither are the South Koreans, neither are the Japanese, none of them. So Africa. Next, I do think part of this strategy should be pro-family, pro-growth policies. I don't know about exactly the same ones that I told you about in um, Korea or Poland, and not because they work or because they bring the numbers up, maybe on the margins, but because part of a stable world that isn't based on growth is increasing comfort, increasing quality of life. And a lot of these birth incentives amount more to quality of life improvements than they do effective birth incentives. The other thing we need to do is we need to make the big three cheaper. And that is healthcare. And I did a whole series on healthcare. Look it up. I'm not going to go into it now. Housing. And there's some good stuff being passed and some good conversations about nimbyism being had right now. So housing needs to be made cheaper. And uh, education. And education has to be reformed completely. We don't need this mass training uh, and, and sitting at desks. We need life training. And I'm going to do a whole episode on that at some point. And we need to increase our demands of universities. They're not going to cut it in this world either. Not at these prices and not at uh, this level of scarcity that they've been maintaining. So uh, I've talked about it in different episodes. I'm going to piece all my thoughts together at some other point. I don't know exactly when. The other thing we need to do is we need to increase the number of productive members of society. That's going to come from a few uh, places. First is we need a SWAT team in these shitty neighborhoods where kids are getting shot, like uh, Southside Chicago. The same way we found $100 billion in, in the cushions for Ukraine, and whether you're pro or against Ukraine, it really goes to show you how quickly we can marshal resources for war, uh, but we can't marshal resources for the war on the streets in Chicago. So let's get serious about that and let's fix that. Uh, and we can do it. We certainly have the resources. No need to look further for proof and treat it like the SWAT team that it needs to be treated with. It's uh, policing. It's a cultural task force. It's a lot of things. And same thing goes for uh Prison reform, same thing goes for poverty and jobs for people who are in poverty, rehab and getting people off these drugs. Those are the things that immediately increase the population because you're now injecting all of these new workers who are paying taxes and supporting all the retirees that are getting old and people who are actually worthy of procreation. Not that they weren't worthy before, but if you're cracked out on the street, no one's looking and going, hmm. 
that's the guy I want to have my baby with, <laughs> the, the cracked out. And it's not even crack. It's, it's, it's opioids, which are way worse. Fentanyl, which kills a lot of people. Anyways, immediately increases the number of prospects uh, off the streets who are now part of productive society. And I think we have to co-fund a lot of R&D and innovation. I've talked about it elsewhere. I'm not going to go into it now. And I also wrote a piece uh, about NATO. I don't think it should be a war-based entity. I think it should be a trade group, and I think it should provide incentives for other nations to join. I did an article about that. So just look up on stefactor.com, look up United Nations, and you'll, you'll find it. The other thing we need to work towards is labor market fluidity. I want to get to the point where we take down the walls where we take down the obstacle courses, all the stuff that the libertarians want, at least in theory, but we can't have right now because the disparities are too huge and our politics are too toxic and we're, we, we don't have the infrastructure. But where would I get this idea from? What wise sage could I possibly have gotten it from? This one. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they want to go back, they can go back and they can cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems. This is the only safety valve right now they have with that unemployment that probably keeps the lid from blowing off down there. And I think we could have a, friend, a fine relationship that's right. Ronald Reagan was a guy who endorsed this, and I am 100% for this, and he is a Republican hero, but you never hear him talked about uh, for his immigration stances, and he had a very reasonable, very logical way of thinking about it. So this is a aspirational goal. This is something we should strive towards. It doesn't have to be right now, but it's something that once we do all these other things, we can then say, hey, we, we can have more permissive immigration, just like the EU did when most of the countries were approximately at the same level of economic uh, success. They're like, okay, it's not a big deal to just let them flow between borders and live in another European country if they want to, because it, it's not going to be like a net a loss or a weird economic problem. And most important, I think we need to take down this toxic rhetoric that we have. It is dumb, it's unhelpful, and we need to scrutinize these idiots who are trying to drum up this hatred, the cheap votes, donation. I, I don't know what it is, but but there, there's a lot of pollutants in our system, you know, whether it's uh, self-interested corporations lobbying for H-1Bs or whether it's lefties trying to make themselves feel better or people on the right wing who overtly, you know, are just scared, hate immigrants who might take their jobs. We need to take it down a few notches and start thinking. And the other thing that I'm just going to tease right now, I'm not going to get into it uh, much, is we need to align the financial interests of big business with our citizens. And I have a few ideas on how to do that. Right now, we're, we're going at each other and that has to stop because I don't think we're going to be able to get rid of big business. In some cases, it doesn't make sense. But um, if we're going to coexist, we need to align our interests much better. So. I promised you a surprise ending, and you are going to get it. It turns out that I am the inventor, or at the very least, the co-inventor of the Great Replacement Theory. So I looked back, I was curious if I had written something about it, and I looked up 
in my book, which came out in 2011, same year that uh, the Great Replacement book came out in France, which I didn't read, so uh, parallel thinking, I wrote a section called Replacing High Earners with Low Earners. So let me read this section to you, and then I'll talk about how my idea differs, but also how my opinion has changed since writing this. So this is what I wrote. Simply put, rich people are not procreating. Poor people are. As immigrants, my parents didn't need a supercomputer at the time, a Commodore 64, to figure out that adding another child to our one-bedroom apartment would break the bank or kill the romance. So I remained an only child and got all my necessities at the 99 cent store. Today, it looks like that store is going to get a lot more customers. Consider California. It's one-seventh of the U.S. economy and offers a glimpse into our future. According to the Public Policy Institute of California, the state's white population is on average 44 years old, college-educated, and has fewer than two kids per household. At an average of 28 years of age, Hispanics are much younger and have about three children per household or 3.7 for new immigrants. At just over 22,000 per year, they earn half of white Californians earn with one-tenth of the net worth. That wouldn't be a problem if the U.S. was swigging Cristal on P. Diddy's yacht. By the way, I just realized that I'm doing a lot of P. Diddy yacht references, and I need to update it with other celebrities who have yachts that are more current. Uh, Is it uh, DiCaprio's yacht? Anyway, the reality is, this is what I wrote back then, the reality is that those who can afford the rising cost of education and healthcare aren't feeling frisky. Over time, that shrinks the tax base, strains public services, and packs the 99 cent stores. So that begs the question, am I a white supremacist? Actually, the opposite. I hate white people. My parents are white. White people have no flavor. They have no, like, certainly my mom's cooking had no flavor. Uh, Here's the thing that I was right and wrong about. Essentially, what I was describing without actually knowing it is the Baumol effect, which I talked about earlier. So yes, when you bring in a lower earning population, that competes with other people who would have those jobs at at higher pay, but also strains resources. All of that is true. But what I didn't really delve into is people don't remain stagnant in their strata. For example, the birth rate for Hispanics who came here already drops by one full person. So they the new immigrants were at 3.7. Last number I saw was at 2.6 or 2.7. So they've dropped by a whole person since being here. Everyone adapts to the home country and whatever the norms are there. That is part of assimilation. This is a moving target. This is not a stagnant thing. And what also ends up happening is people start to identify more with the other people that are already here. They're no longer identifying as, oh, I I feel just like that new immigrant that just came over the border. No, they feel more like the people who are already here, that they're trying to grain themselves in that world and that society and in those jobs and in those workplaces and in those cultural institutions. In fact, previous immigrants start to look at 
the new immigrants with some trepidation and disdain. And no one has explained this better than comedian Fahim Anwar. I'm going to play you this clip. It's hilarious. What's crazy, too, is like a lot of Trump, uh, a lot of immigrants actually like Trump, which is crazy. They come to this country and they like root for him and they want to close the borders. And people think that's kind of hypocritical. Like, how do you come to this country? And then suddenly you want to like pull the ladder up once you get to this country. But I kind of understand the logic. It's kind of like when guys get into a nightclub, they don't say, where, where are all the dudes? They're like, get these fucking dudes out of here. They get in like, finally, fucking sausage fest in here, huh? Let's get rid of these dudes. First order of business. Like, is there a bleeding heart dude in there? Like, there's so, so many dudes outside. There, there's no house music in that alley. They came here from Orange County for a better night. <laughs> like, one of them comes through an air vent. Like, you're here. You're here now. Somebody get us some Grey Goose. Hurry. Get him on the dance floor. Yeah, he's just like, oh, I made it. Oh. Bring me your funky masses. (laughs) So this brings me to lefties who are typically pro-immigration. They're right that there is some overt hatred of immigrants on the right. There's no denying that. We've seen them marching with the tiki torches. But where they're racist in their own way, it's saying, hey, people of color, you're, you're black, you're Indian, you're Asian. Let's lump you all together into a voting block that's convenient for me, but really isn't remotely accurate. The Cubans, the Nigerians, the Indians that I know are not interested in handouts. So the stuff that the Democrats are selling is not even what the new immigrants are buying and certainly not the next generation that want opportunity. They don't want handouts. Aside from the pandering and the tokenism, they're just wrong. They're just wrong in their assessment of what people want. Jamaicans are some of the hardest workers in the world. They're not looking to to be in some make-a-wish foundation for people of color that the left is trying to create. Ultimately, everyone wants the same things. They want safety. They want good schools. They want affordable housing. They want transportation. Maybe we differ on how we achieve that. But to think that it differs by race or ethnicity is so racist. It's just racist. Sorry, it's racist. Ultimately, this just becomes a dogma. So everything we've talked about here today, whether it's the great replacement on the right and the bastardization of all of that uh, thinking, which is basically a a curmudgeon. (laughs) Camus is a guy who's like, oh, everything replaced is bad. It's it's like an old man shouting at the clouds. And that being bastardized by a bunch of blood and soil people who really should be concerned about semen and soil. So they're confused. And then the lefties who are confused because they're trying to lump people of color together and give them handouts when what they want is opportunity. They want to join this club. This is a pretty good club and it assimilates people. And it assimilates not because it's so great and we work that hard. It's because it's indifferent. It's indifferent to race. It's indifferent to class. It's indifferent to ethnicity. It's just indifferent. And that indifference is what allows you to get onto Puffy's boat, Leo DiCaprio's boat. Anyway, all of these are bad dogmas and they're full of terrible solutions. Some may say final 
solutions that are terrible. And the next action item for all of us is a little bit of compassion and a little bit of nuance in having these conversations. And understanding where other people are coming from and not antagonism, even if they're wrong, even if they appear hateful, there is a granule of truth. There is a granule of suffering behind their actions. So seek understanding, seek commonality, seek common ground. And so I'm going to get into in the next episode is going to be about how to get out of these bad dogmas. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with others. Review the show on iTunes. It really helps. Subscribe on YouTube. And most importantly, support it on Patreon if you can. Patreon.com forward slash McFuture. I will see you next time on the McFuture. World Economic Forum had this uh, famous post that everyone got mad about, which is you will own nothing and be happy. And then (laughs) recently there was this um, 15 minute cities, which they're saying it's more humane than driving everywhere. That's all great. But (laughs) in the context of some of the other things they've said, people are like, oh, wait a minute. There's a bunch of billionaires that are going to try to tell us what to do. So the natural reaction, especially among certain cultures like Americans, like French, we've got revolution in our blood. You can't just tell us, oh, (laughs) this is how it's going to be. And what's funny is... Every single person I know in the suburbs loves the suburbs. They love the space. They love the quiet. They love all the stuff. And they hate the city. They're like, oh, it's so noisy. It's so crowded. I didn't like the walking. I didn't like the subway. And they think they made this choice to live here. They didn't. Suburban planners who designed the suburbs for cars, they made the choice. And now we're all living in it. So this whole idea that people are making choices uh, and there aren't a whole group of architects and planners and designers that planned how we live. People talk about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs has way less of an impact on our lives day to day than the people who designed cities and suburbs. And I'm going to do a whole episode on this. And then with AI threatening jobs. This is the first time where all these people completely dismissive of automation and outsourcing because they're beneficiaries of it. They, they've got a nice house. They've got a nice white collar job. They got good insurance. They don't care about a lot of this stuff that's going on. They're like, oh yeah, uh, Medicare for all. That's not for me. I, I don't care about that. But all of a sudden you see all of these well-to-do poet laureates in marketing going, wait a minute, this thing can write marketing copy better than I can. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. I've looked at the output of ChatGPT. It's not perfect. It's not great for every application, but I would say it's better than 80% of the professional corporate work that I've seen. So take that for what it is, but a lot of things are going away and a lot of things are going to change. In fact, I wanted ChatGPT to help produce some of the notes for this episode. I'm like, can you give me the pros, the cons, the truth, the lies? It said, oh, I can't do that. This topic is too controversial. I forgot the exact prompt. The funny thing is immediately after I was like, can you give me a haiku about Chairman Mao? 
of China. And it wrote the following. Amidst China's land, Chairman Mao's reign did stand. Evolution grand. It wrote a haiku about a guy blamed for about 42.5 million deaths. So I'm happy to report that the show is 100% organic and 1,000% controversial, certainly for AI. At the end of the day, AI is going to thought police you. Unless this thing is completely open source and subject to your rules and not whatever freak codes it. It's also the risk management of the company that owns the AI. They don't want to get sued. So they don't want to release stuff that could be toxic or dangerous or, or controversial for them. They, they don't need it. They're profit machines. 